0: So hab' malchusoy, dino De sicher mauch so i Vor la schem schweizrach Ja weh zu das Ko the first thing is I do believe we are live.
1: Thank you, my dear friends, for joining today. Sorry for a little bit of our rain delay here. so much to learn so much information so much depth so much profundity we are just <laughs> we are just scratching the surface in our quest to try to understand hashem's amazing torah and to try to find the guidance and inspiration that you and I need to make the most of our life I'm really glad that you're joining today as we continue our series of awesome ascendancy. We're studying the Shir HaMalot, most uh, extraordinary collection of psalms in the entire book. 15, Fifteen chapters of Tehillim that speak about elevation, ascension. In our series, we've completed the first of the psalms, which is Capital. Kufchhof a Psalm 120. And today we begin to study the second Psalm. And let me just turn this phone off. Sorry about that. The last thing I want to say is that in addition to in addition to actually understanding the prophetic and timeless words of David HaMelech I believe that this chapter of Tehillim speaks very much to us personally, and I'm going to do my best to try to make it, try to make it personal. Take this personally, I and mean, don't get offended, but take what we learned today personally. I'm trying to take it personally. If we take this personally, if we identify with the words of David Hamelach, and you'll see that's how the commentaries actually explain this your life and my life could be better as a result. Who could argue with having a better life? You just have to make a little bit of an investment of time. You need to try to focus instead of having your mind wander and listen carefully. I hope you'll stay with me on this fascinating journey that we're beginning today, the journey of Psalm 121. Shir, not hamalot, not the song of ascents, but rather, rather shir lamalot, which could perhaps best be translated as a song to ascents or to an ascension. I in to go up. Everybody wants to be promoted, everybody wants to be elevated. This is not just a song of elevation. It is a song towards elevation. Shir l'amalot. And this song differs from all the others because the other 14 are shir ha-malot. They're songs of elevation. This is a song towards elevation. This is a song that can really pick us up. (laughs) <laughs> so, so what if I told you that we ask the wrong questions, but we address it to the wrong place? And that that could be the source of our not getting answers. That if we would address the question right, or send it to the proper address or destination, we would get the answer we're looking for. Imagine that. Let's begin the study. Kapitel Kuf Chafal of Psalm 121. King David speaks or sings, and he says, Shir la malot, a song to ascents, a song to the ascents, plural. el Hehorim, I raise or lift my eyes up to the mountains, I lift my eyes to the mountains. So a song to the ascents begins with lifting one's eyes to the mountains. Why am I lifting my eyes to the mountains? Well, the psalmist continues, from where where will my help come? We can all use help. (laughs) I know I can use lots of help. I bet you you can use help too. Do you ever wonder... From where will your help come? What if that question was asked thousands of years ago? What if it actually has an answer? Let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi transcribes the words, Shir Lamalot. I'm going to go on a limb here. I want to make a suggestion, even though I'm just a little guy. I think the fact that Rashi transcribes the words, Shir Hamalot, in Psalm 120. And then when it comes to Psalm 121, Rashi transcribes the words sheer Lamalot, incidentally, not once, but twice. The fact that Rashi does that is telling. Rashi is telling us something about the difference between Hamalot and Lamalot. And I'm going to I'm going to suggest that because when we get to verse 122, which begins with the words, Shir Hamalot, Rashi says nothing. He begins his commentary with the words, Somachti, Beomrimli, I, I rejoiced when they were saying to me. In other words, that's after the Shir Hamalot. And incidentally, Psalm 122 is the first time we uh, achieve or see Dov Melach's name. That says, Shir Hamalot Lidovid, a song of ascents to David. Previously, David, King David, is speaking, but his name doesn't show up. And so it is with the subsequent psalms. All of the rest of the Shir Hamalot do not explain in Rashi's commentary the word Shir Hamalot. So he is going to be explaining Shir Hamalot, but once, and that will be instructive for all of the other 13 Shir Hamalot, and he talks about the Shir Lamalot. You see, my friends, in Hebrew, the word hey, the letter hey, in front of a word, usually would be the equivalent of the English the. So a myla is a level or a level up. Multiple levels. Speaking in a in the syntax of elevation, you would call it ascent or ascending. A in the front of a word is typically understood to mean towards or to. So what is the meaning of a song of a sense. What, what does that mean? This musical "Get You High?" What is the meaning of "sheer lamalot," a song to a sense. So I want to tell you what Rashi says, and then I want to mention the fact that nobody else says anything like this. None of the other commentaries. Which is quite shocking, because you'll hear most of what the commentaries, who didn't communicate with each other, most of what they speak about is kindred. It's not entirely disparate. Yet the words that Rashi opens his commentary with are unique only to the commentary in Rashi. He says, Hapshat. Let's talk about simple, straightforward meaning. Let's talk about pshat. What is the meaning of sheer la-malot? Says Rashi, Kishohoyu ha Leviyim, Matchilim la'alot bemalot, when the levim would begin to ascend the stairs. Amrushirze. This is where it began. They said this song. They began to express themselves songfully with Psalm 121. But it's not the first Psalm. Of the Shir Hamalot. If this is the first of the Shir Hamalot, wouldn't it be logical for Psalm 121 to be Psalm 120? So Rashi says, Even though this song, this psalm, is not the first one in the order of the entire 15. Torah, which includes clearly also the Chetuvim, not only is the Pentateuch, but also the other scriptural writings are not necessarily written in order. This is really interesting because when we study the Chumash, that's the five books of Moses, the word Chumash comes from the term Chamesh or Khamisha. Like, you have five fingers? There are five books that are ascribed to Moshe Rabbeinu. Although the first book begins many generations before Moshe Rabbeinu, to be precise, 26 generations before. He's the 27th generation from Adam and Eve. Nonetheless, it's called Torah Moshe, because it is God who narrates to Moshe Rabbeinu the story of world and then Jewish history we first hear about the creation of the universe our planet specifically we talk about the beginning of humanity's history sordid history i might add a savior named noah and then in the third portion of the torah we get introduced to the first jew that's many generations later there are 10 generations from adam to noah 10 generations from noah to abraham and so The first 20 generations of humanity are kind of framed in the first two Torah portions. And then the subsequent seven generations span the duration of the book of Genesis and the opening of the book of Exodus, Bereshit and Shemot. And then we get introduced to Moshe Rabbeinu, right in the beginning of Exodus. And about halfway through Sefer Shemot, we get introduced to Matan Torah. The Jewish people are born as a nation. We get introduced to the giving of the Torah, and Moshe Arbenu was told to write the scripture from Bereshit all the way up to the story of Mass Revelation at Sinai. So it's Torah at Moshe. Many believe that the Torah is a history book. They are, of course, profoundly wrong about that. <laughs> because they have this misguided belief that it's a history book, they will oftentimes criticize the Torah for being poorly written from a historical perspective. And of course, they're right. It is poorly written from a historical perspective. It isn't well-documented history, but it was never meant to be. That's like somebody making somebody an omelet. and said, you know, that's, those are, that's lousy scrambled eggs you made. Yeah, but it was a great omelet. I never intended to make scrambled eggs. Well, eggs are eggs. No, an omelet's an omelet, the scrambled, the scrambled. The Torah looks like history, it uses history, the facts are historical, but that's not the purpose of Torah. The purpose of Torah is to convey messages of meaning. The purpose of Torah is as its name, Hora'ah, instructions for life. For reasons be known only to the Creator, Hashem chose. To convey the profoundest truisms and instructions for life in the milieu of the story of history. Simply stated, we're supposed to learn from the mistakes of the past instead of keep repeating them. These people and their lives serve as paradigm and roadmap for us. Humanity's failings continue to be repeated because we aren't learning the lessons that they convey. The patriarchs and the matriarchs were cut of a different cloth, entirely different level of quality. And yet, what seems to be foibles and failings form the foundation of our weltanschauung, how we're supposed to view life and how we can achieve success in the mission that Hashem gave us individually a Torah Jew believes that the Torah is not merely written for the nation of Israel it is not merely of historic or overarching national importance the Torah is God's personal word to me and I can find the answers to my challenges to my issues and to my problems if I will study the Torah properly Because the Torah was not written as a history book, because the Torah has that specific focus of teaching you how to live on the altar of lessons of importance, history gets sacrificed. It's not important if history is told out of order because it was never meant to be a history book. It's important for the lessons to be conveyed in the most meaningful way. And if, for whatever reason, sometimes a deviation of the order is necessary, a reframing of the historical reality, being not that Chas in the Torah tells you something that didn't happen, but the Torah will present one fact, perhaps before it presents another historical, factual detail that occurred previously, but it will present it only later, is because for the goal of teaching the lesson, that's the most effective way. That's the meaning of a There is no necessarily chronological order to the Torah. Chronology is not a given. So you can't say, well, what's going on here? The Torah says A in chapter 6 and then it says B in chapter 7. It must be that chapter 6 happened before chapter 7, but of course that's a contradiction. It doesn't have to mean that at all. In fact, if it's a clear contradiction, it's obvious that chapter 6 took place after chapter 7. But it is precise that chapter 6 came first because only after you learn the lessons of chapter 6 can you go on to chapter 7, for example. So, I've never seen the words, and that's just because I'm not so learned. But I've never seen it in the syntax of Psalms. And that's because, and I don't know if, if this shows up elsewhere, it may. But I've never seen it, and the reason it struck me so is because the, the, the book of Tehillim is necessarily not historical per se. I mean, the, the people mentioned here, the names here, are historical names. Yes, they were children of Korach. They did necessarily compose prophetic hymns, hymns that are included in the words of Tehillim. There are, specifically, some of the Psalms that were authored by Moses, tend to be sure. The Talmud talks about this in Mesechet Psechim at length and elsewhere. And the Talmud talks to us about the authorship of Tehillim and the fact that there was a, a man whose name was Haman. Don't confuse him with Haman. <laughs> Haman was a good guy. Haman, hazrachi There is Eitan, another. There is Asaf, who spoke on behalf of the Jewish people with higher consciousness, with Ruach HaKodesh. There are various people who composed the Psalms of Tehillim. Davar Melech redacted and sewed together all of these different prophetic expressions, the ones that were relevant for all of Am Yisrael for all time. And it's definitely not historical. It's not like the first psalms are the ones that come from Adam and then the psalms that come from a later generation. And in fact, historically, some of the psalms that are attributed to King David actually preceded him by many generations. A, a perfect example would be the Shir HaMalo. The Medrash tells us clearly in stunning clarity in Beresha's Rabban, in chapter 68, that the Shir HaMalot were actually originally intoned and sung by none other than Jacob the patriarch. So there is no historical order. There's a history of Tehillim, but there is no historical order. So Rashi uses this phrase that has very different meaning elsewhere about the order of Tehillim. Most of Tehillim doesn't have, it would seem, a specific order. But the 15 Shir HaMalot, it's a song of ascents and you ascend in order you ascend in an orderly fashion. You go from level one to level two. You don't skip to level four and then go back to level two. That wouldn't be a story of ascensions. That would be a story of shoots and ladders, going up and going down. But ascending necessarily bespeaks order. So Rashi tells us something fascinating. He says, you must know that Psalm 120 and Psalm 121 are not necessarily in order, which leaves me to understand that, contentfully speaking, the meaning of Psalm 120, the message of the first of the Shir HaMalot, must come first. The message of the second one of the Shir HaMalot, Psalm 121, must come second. But in the way it was sung in the Beit HaMikdash, this is where it began. They would begin the song, they would begin to ascend with Psalm 121. Now, when we turn back, to Psalm 120, to Rashi's commentary, we see words that Rashi says, he says, Shayomru this were the songs, song of ascent, ascends, ascendings, ascending is going up. that the would say Oto me'ezret yisrael they go from a higher plateau in the Beit HaMikdush to a lower plateau. So interesting that Rashi says that because the stairs really go up and go down. And the purpose of any ascension is always to bring whatever you reached back down to a lower level. We talked about this in, in their opening class in the previous psalm. So Rashi says that there are 15 of these songs and these 15 songs Yomru Halavim Oto al Mesher The Levites would sing the songs on the steps or levels. It was a fancy staircase in front of the Ezrat Yisrael of Beit HaMikdash proper. And the Levites would sing the songs on those stairs. Now, interestingly, nobody else talks about the song being sung on the stairs. They say that the song corresponds to the staircase of the Beit HaMikdash. Nobody says the song was sung on it. Only Rashi. Only Rashi on Psalm 120. Which leads me to make the following statement. It is only Rashi who clearly states that these songs were sung on the stairs. He says that openly in Shir HaMalo. That's his opening commentary. And so his opening commentary on la malot is, and when they would begin to walk up those stairs, when they would begin to ascend, they would start with Psalm 121. Of course, the shirah HaMalot have to be written in a different order. Psalm 121 is the second psalm. But when they would actually sing these psalms on the stairs, they would begin here. Why? Why, why would they begin by singing this second song? And how is that important and relevant to us? So firstly, I wanna I want to point something out. I want to share something interesting with you. The Rebbe used to used to speak on the evenings of the festival of Sukkot. This began in the year 1980, tavshim Amalaf and onward. It was the year of Hakil, a year in which there's this special notion of gathering members of Am together, and the Rebbe took an initiative. And he began to speak every night of Yom Tov. And he promulgated something called Simchat Beit HaShoeva. Kind of get us day going that we should rejoice and sing and dance all night. The way it was in the Beit HaMikdash. And so it was and so it is on the streets of Crown Heights in Brooklyn, New York, until this very day. On each of the nights of Sukkot, the Rebbe would generally, although not exclusively, but he would generally touch on or focus on the Ushpizin on the different proverbial guests that visit the sukkah. You know, you've probably seen the movie Ushpizen. It means guests, actually, in Aramaic. Ushbizya yeah. is a guest house. Ushpaz can mean to host. So the Zohar says that there are special souls, what we call millennial souls, exalted souls of the Jewish people who continue to serve a function. They are shivaroyim, they're called seven... Shepherds, they shepherd us, they provide us with, with courage and strength and intuition and wisdom. They provide us with spirituality. It's the mechanism of the souls of Israel. We're linked to souls like Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron. And every night of Sukkot, they actually, these souls come and we're sitting in the Wi-Fi, so to speak, we're, we're sitting in their presence. We could be downloading all kinds of energy, if only we would make ourselves available to it. And and every night that Rebbe would speak about the Ushpi is the guest of that night. So it's the third night of Sukkot. And the year is 1982 Tishrei Em This is the third year now that the Rebbe has been doing this. And on the third night of Sukkot, the Rebbe delivered a wide-ranging sicha. He talked about a lot of things, really covered a lot of ground talked about. It, it wasn't uh, one subject. Many, many subjects were, were, were discussed. And at some point, the Rebbe touches on the Shir HaMalot. Why does he touch on the Shir HaMalot on the third night of Sukkot? Well, Avraham, Yitzchak, and the third guest is Yaakov, or the, the leader of the entire collection of guests is Yaakov on the third night. And as I mentioned to you, there's a special connection between, between Yaakov and between the Jewish people. And as the Mepharshim, as the commentaries explain, Yaakov was in a state of exilic displacement, living far away from the Israel he loved in an environment that was hostile to everything he believed in. And yet Yaakov marries and raises a family and maintains his values and doesn't allow the galut to get him down. In fact, he sings his way through it because he knows with perfect faith that Hashem is going to provide for him and that this yurida this descent is ultimately Litzorach aliyah it's for the purpose of an appropriate ascent i discussed this at length in the previous episode the final class on um, the first of HaMalot. so the rebbe talks about this he talks about this talks about that medrash and and the rebbe said something very interesting he said this is also linked and connected to the festivities of Sukkot. It's not just connected to Yaakov, it's connected to the subject, Simchat Beit HaShoeva, as it's proverbially referred to, the the rejoicing of the water drawing. Because, and this is something else that we focused on quite intensely in the opening classes, the opening episodes on the Shir HaMalot, there's a Mishnah, which is found in Mesechet Sukkah on page 51, side B, and the Mishnah says, and this is a quote, chassidim vaAnshe shemaisa, pious Jews, people who go beyond the call of duty. Anshe shemaisa is like the ultimate compliment, literally means people of action, people who get stuff done. You know, like, you can rely on this person, reliable people. So this is, that's a really big compliment, reliable Yiddishkeit stalwarts. People get the job done. So those kinds of people, generally, communally-minded people, people who live with a sense of, of, of national destiny, not just their own personal needs. So these people, they were dancing. Not everybody got to dance. It was like the leadership of the Jewish people. The Levites, the temple Levites, they were holding a variety of musical instruments, flutes and other wind instruments and other instruments. And they would be al chamesh esrei malot on the fifteen steps leading from the ezrat nashim, from the proverbial woman's courtyard, into the Israelite courtyard, which is how the two disparate plateaus in the front of the Beit Hamikdash facade were known. Really, three: there's ezrat karanim, and then there's ezrat yisrael, and then the lower level is called ezrat nashim. Different plateaus. So. The Mishnah says it's Hamesha Seshir This corresponds to the fifteenth song of ascents, which is found in Tehillim. Leviim, Omdim. It was on these steps that the Levites stood. This was their stage, if you will. shira, and they would, they would sing. They would chant their praise, their song. So the Rebbe said something very interesting. The Rebbe said. He would like to suggest that not only did the Levites stand when they sang, but in fact, the song that they sung was the Shir HaMalot. And the Rebbe said, not a single one of the commentaries on the Mishnah speak about what they sang. What, What was the content of the music? Nobody talks about that. We only hear about the kinds of instruments used. And the Mishnah is very specific about location. Where were the Levites standing when they actually sang those songs? What they sang, the Mishnah doesn't say. The Hebbas said, but if you take a look in the Book of Tehillim, in Rashi's commentary, Rashi says, o-to, Song of a sense that the Levites would recite upon the 15 steps. In other words, the the Rebbe saw, in the words of Rashi, is Rashi identifying not only where the Levites were standing, where they were positioned for their song, but in fact, what they were singing. And therefore, the Rebbe made a link between the Shir HaMalot, the content of these hymns, of these lyrics, and the Simchat Beit HaShoeva. The Rebbe said, it's, and, and he said, it's really astonishing the way it's written, transcribed here in Hebrew in the His "Lapela It astonishes me that Rebbe said it's really quite shocking that nobody seems to quote Rashi here. So, this, this uh, vignette of the Sicha really got me thinking. We're going to come back to this, this talk a little bit later. But this talk really got me thinking because I was asking myself the following question. How is it that none of the other commentaries say something even remotely close to what Rashi says? Nobody speaks in Psalm 121 about where this was being sung. Nobody, nobody sees the limalot instead of hamalot as indicative of this being the opening song, the opening act, if you will. But it makes sense, actually. Shir HaMalot is the song of the ascents. The ascents, there are many ascents. There are 14 songs beginning with Shir HaMalot. But this is the Shir Limalot. This is the Shir towards the ascent. This is how they begin. This is how they start to sing. This is how the music sort of launches. Why doesn't anybody else say that? And based on what the Rebbe said, I thought to myself, you know what? Rashi is actually the only one who explicitly states that it was the Shir Hamalot that were actually sung on those stairs. So, Rashi's commentary in the beginning of Psalm 121 would thusly be a continuation of his commentary in the beginning of Psalm 120. At the beginning of Psalm 120, he says, here's what they sang on those stairs. And then when 121 shifts from Shir Hamalot to Shir Lamalot, Rashi says, that's right. The pshat, the meaning of two elevation, is because they began with this song so if they began with this song why isn't this song the one that comes first because contentfully speaking song a precedes song b message wise Kapitel kufchaf must come first but for some reason this is what they started the night of song with so we now have i suppose two questions to answer or two orders of business Number one, why did they start the song with these words? What is it about these words that would enable you or I to sing best or to start singing? That's, I think, a reasonable question to ask. And the second reasonable question is, so what is it about the first psalm that necessarily leads us into the second psalm, causing the first one to be Psalm 120 and Shir to be Psalm 121? So, let's please put that on the back burner and with Hashem's help, I hope to be able to answer those questions. But I want to take a look at some of the other commentaries just just to focus on the words Shir malot." So, for example, and in in no particular order, when you take a look at the words of the Ibn Ezra, for example, the Ibn Ezra will note that this is Noam Piut. This is a very pleasant, very sweet lyric or or hymn. malot. It's this is where all ascent begins. Ascent begins here. Why does ascent begin here? He says, he says this was said in the voice of, of Israel when they are in a difficult set of circumstances. When they find themselves when they find themselves under siege, beleaguered. Or this is our Bnei Galuteno, this is on the generations of, of our exile. So the song starts here, my friends. We all need to elevate ourselves. Our nation needs to be picked up. It the song to lift us out of our doldrums the music that can begin to raise us into a higher and better frame of mind begins with the words of Psalm 121. That's what Ibn Ezra says. Rabbeinu David Kimchi, the Radak, points out this is the only one of the collection of 15 that starts with a lamed, not a hay, not ha malot, not the song of the ascents, but share lamalot. And he says, the lamet here supplants the hay. And it's just like hamalot. Lamalot, hamalot, they're interchangeable. They don't have to be the or two. They're interchangeable. So Radak glosses over it. He doesn't really make an issue out of it. So that's how it is. And the Metsudah, David does something very similar. In the Metsudah Tzim, pardon me, he says, Lamalot. Kimmo hamalot. Lamad idea. Just like a hey can make it a definite article, of thee, a Lamed can also do that sometimes. So sometimes lamad doesn't mean two. sometimes lamad also kind of means thee. They both touch on the fact that there's a distinction here, but they gloss over it. And yet, Rashi is telling us. The song began here when the Levites would go up the stairs. Ibn Ezra is telling us, this is noam ampiot trilatolamalot. malo. This is the song that positions you, that begins to send you in the right direction. So from Rashi and Ibn Ezra's perspective, there's something foundational about, th- this song is going to position you right. You've got to be kind of set up Facing the right direction. Once you have the right, what we call in Hebrew, kivun. Once you have the, the right kind of approach, the rest will fall into place. And I would ask you, why, obviously, is something we need to answer. What is it about this psalm that somehow puts us exactly where we want and have to be? What is it about this psalm that will give us the right frame of mind to deal with our issues in an effective way? Well, I suppose at this point we should start to find out what the psalm says, because clearly this, this psalm has got something special for us. Now, before we actually delve into what the song has for us, I must tell you that Rashi returns a second time he again transcribes the words Shir Lamalot. The first one was Pshat. Pshat is what they actually did. That's like the pragmatic meaning is that's how they started their journey. But there's a deeper spiritual meaning. It's not just what the Levites did on the night of Sukkot or nights of the festival. They didn't just begin with the song. But Shir Lamalot, he says, really is a remez, according to Rashi. And Rashi here is quoting the Sifri in chapter 47. Sifri is the Medesh Halacha on, on Devarim. And Rashi says that in the second one of these songs, it alludes to the the levels, if you will, the ascents that await the righteous in the world to come. So this speaks about the reward of the righteous. Let me make a disclaimer before I keep reading. I don't know what I'm talking about now, but I'm just reading to the words of Rashi. <speaking in Hebrew> so, every righteous person has a journey to make. He's got to go from, quote, under the tree of life to the throne of glory. God's proverbial chair of honor, his throne. The Tanya besifri because we learned in the Sifri. Shir hamalot, ain kativkan. It doesn't say a song of the ascents. El shir la It says a song towards the ascents. Shir, a song. Le shatid la asot malot tzadikim la asid This is a song that is designed for the one who is destined to create these levels for the righteous in the future, in the afterlife, in the eternal reward of the righteous. And this is the meaning, that the kalir, this is what the kalir was meant. This is what he was thinking about. This is what he was alluding to. This is the backstory of his poetry. Now this is in a hymn, which is recited in some communities on the second day of Sukkot. And Rashi says that the Kalir refers to the compositions, the prayerful composition of Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir. And then he says, Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir is Benoi Shal Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He's the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now usually, Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai's son is called Elazar, not Eliezer. And Rashi says, look at the Gemara Echagiga on page 13. But I did. And it mentions, it mentions the name of Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai's son wanting to learn the secrets of Torah or a teacher of his wanting to share with him and then him being uncomfortable. And he said, I need to grow, I need to be, Elevated before I can hear such Torah secrets. And then his teacher passes. And another elder disciple says, I will teach you those mystical secrets. And he says, no, no. If I was meant to learn them, I would have learned it from our teacher. And he never learns these secrets called Mysa Merkova. Now, it's a mystery to me. I don't know why. Rashi here sends me off to... Page 13 or maybe page 11 in Mesech I don't know. Maybe because over there the name is Eliezer, not Elozer. I don't know. But I, I can tell you this historically. Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir is the most prolific of the Paitanim. Most compositions that we recite in our prayers until this very day, especially in the high holidays, were the composition of this extraordinarily profound, prayerful person. Who he was... It's a mystery. There's a lot of dissent and discussion about it. Rashi seems to ordain that it was the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Others maintain vociferously that it was somebody who lived in the 10th century and is not to be confused with the Tanayak Rabbi Elazzo or Rabbi Eleazar. And that some say that he ate some kind of cookie with mystical things on it that opened his mind and gave him vision and intuition that others didn't have. One thing is certain. His words are filled with the deepest mystical secrets. So when we analyze, these are not just lyrics. not just, this is not the Beatles. This is holiness distilled into prayerful prose. So Rashi oftentimes will quote the, the piyut, will quote the liturgy, the, prayer, the prayerful liturgy, to indicate or prove or buttress a point he's making in Torah learning. And here is an example. Rashi says that the Python says in this Piyot, in this composition, prayerful composition recited on the second day of Sukkot. From under it, there are 30 degrees of ascension. And these degrees continue until the proverbial throne of God. The neshamas are elevated by virtue of the energy the power of, of these songful words, of this spiritual poetry. I told you at the beginning, I don't know what I'm saying. I've, I, I've, I haven't been there, and I don't want to go there. And I don't even know if I'm going to be righteous anyway. Who knows even where I end up going. I hope to stay with you for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, I, want, I don't want not to be in Golos. I want Mashiach to come, and that's part of what this is about. And I hope I'll have the privilege of teaching you Torah, even when Mashiach comes. We can, or we can study Torah together. We'll learn Torah together from Mashiach. But Rashi talks about this. And if, if that's the Atid Lavo that he's talking about, then we'll all experience this together. But if it's a different world to come, the afterlife world to come, I, I don't want to get there. At any rate, the Shir the malot. Then the point is that these prayerful words serve to elevate. They serve to elevate. And there seems to be an indication... Of each person receiving the recompense that he or she deserves and each one by virtue of these prayers able to go to the precise location where they are destined to be. It's like you know people can sing the same song but people have a different voice and somebody's got a soprano we can sing a very very high hit very high notes same song he's hitting one note and somebody else is hitting other notes but it's the same song so these are the bars of music if you will that enable us to rise above the fray. To rise above the the minutia of life as we know it. Eitzachayim, the tree of life, which is about life invested in a physical, material trapping. And this enables somebody to divest themselves of the limitations of our worldly universe so that you can move into a higher space, a higher form of reality. And that happens from the Shir malot. And interestingly, I mean, Ibn Ezra also seems to be alluding to the song that can elevate you or lift you up. The Radak says, besides what I told you, that the Lamed and the Hay is interchangeable, he says, but the Yeshbo Drash, there is a homily, there's a homily about this. and And the Drash, what it alludes to is, He says, Shir Malot, Shir Lim Malot, a song for a sense is actually, or to a sense refers, it's a euphemism. It it, it kind of indicates or alludes to a hundred degrees of elevation. And this is along the lines of the Drash, says the Radak, that he alluded to earlier. And he does allude to to, these kind of songs earlier, to a songful elevation. He says it could refer to the songs of Bnei HaGolah. You know, you and I, the generations of exile who are stuck in circumstances and want to elevate themselves. And he says it could also refer to an elevation that's achieved. An elevation of the future. An elevation of soul. Elevations. A person being able to transcend limitation or things that would in some way obscure, obfuscate, you know, shackle the soul, disabling it from spreading its wings and soaring. So there you have it. This is what the Shir HaMalot are about. These are very um, lofty, elevating songs. When I was, when I was preparing this class, I, I kind of thought of a story that I heard. I don't know that the story is related, but maybe it is. Definitely a good story. So it's a story about the Al And the Al was a Torah genius. A rare Torah genius. Maybe one in a generation, kind of Torah genius. And he began his youth as very you know, studying Torah very rigorously. And then and then he discovers the Magad of Mizrich and initially is not keen on the on the spirituality of chassidus, if you will, or the emotional kind of rhythm. And then, and then he proverbially attaches himself, comes around, attaches himself as a devoted chassid to his Rebbe, to the of Mizrich, and and he becomes, you know, the greatest promulgator of the depth, of the energy, the feeling, the emotion, of Hasidus within a framework of, of logic, within a framework of, of study and a scholastic excellence and achievement. And he founds the movement, the teaching of Hasidus called Chabad, which is an acronym for the three intellectual faculties. The Hasidic movement faced enormous opposition, intense, intense opposition from the non-Hasidic camp. Some of it well-intentioned. Many people believed that this was a another messianic movement. They were afraid of any kind of change. They didn't realize this is a a new life being breathed into Torah Judaism. The Alter Rebbe, he was given the most difficult part of Eastern Europe to try to bring Hasidus to to Lithuania and Right Russia, where people were very brilliant, very very scholarly, but not interested in this kind of emotional side and soul energy of, of, of... They weren't interested in that. They were like rigorous scholars. And Al Alter Rebbe's job is to go and bring Chassidus there. It changed tens of thousands of lives. Alter Rebbe's sheer brilliance and charisma. and I'm not even talking about the holiness. Just the, the talents that he had were astounding. Anyway, so the story goes that the Alter Rebbe, comes to a place called Vitebsk. Vitebsk was like the, I guess you would call it the Yiddishkeit capital of white Russia. And kind of like Vilna was in Lithuania, same, same kind of idea. in Vitebsk there were many brilliant scholars, famous scholars, famous rabbis, famous scholars. And the Altarebbe comes into a particular Beit Medrash with this tremendous opposition to the and he ascends the Bhima, he's going, to, he's going to speak. He has permission to speak, he's going to speak. And he says, okay, we can do this two ways. You can ask me your questions, and I'll, I'll answer your questions. Or the Alta Rebbe said, I can, I can sing you a song, and your questions will be answered. And the people were intrigued. This is like, a, you know, who makes an offer like that? So, so they, they chose the second, and the Alta Rebbe said, there's a Mishnah. It's a Mishnah in the Masechet, the tractate called Shabbat. It talks about observing Shabbat properly, and, and the Mishnah says, "Kol bale hasher." Share is a like a halter. You know, like the the, the the straps or the string or the the leash that you lead a cow, an ox with. It's called a share in, in Aramaic, in Hebrew. Mishnah Hebrew. So he says. The question becomes like this. On Shabbat, it says you must rest your servants, and it says even your livestock. Now, that doesn't mean that a cow is expected to make Kiddush, but it does mean that just as you are not permitted to carry things from a private domain to a public domain, or just as you're not permitted to transport things in a public thoroughfare, you're not permitted to load your animal on Shabbat either. Now, we can't carry anything but you can certainly walk in the street wearing your clothing because it's your clothing. It's not a load. I'm not carrying a load. Some people don't want to wear eyeglasses on Shabbat. Sure if they have to go in a place that doesn't have an Arab because they say it's not really a garment. A lot of other people say, yeah, it's like a garment. <laughs> I can't go anywhere without my eyeglasses. I don't see anything. So the animal doesn't wear clothes. May the animal go out with its, with its halter. With, its, with the strap that's used to lead it, or is that called carrying a load, carrying a weight? So the Mishnah says, kol bale hashir, bishir, If it's the kind of animal that wears this halter, then it can leave, it can go and come between dom- domains. There's no issue with Shabbat. That's the literal Mishnah. So the Altar Rebbe said, Kol Bali Hashir, he vowelized the word share as a shir, He said, All masters of song can come through song and go through song. And Al Tareba began to sing a very, very heart, soul stirring song. And as he sang the song, all of the scholars sitting in the Beis Medrash felt their consciousness expanding and they felt themselves being elevated. They felt themselves transported into a different level of consciousness. And from that higher level of consciousness, there were no questions. The questions that they had previously, being able to see things entirely differently, now all the questions went away. So the Altarebbe was able to elevate the crowd by virtue of holy music. This is is perhaps, I think, maybe the meaning of what's being said here. Now there's... Earthly or fleshy music, music which is an expression of selfish love, sexual love, romantic love, or people's frustrations, anger, melancholy, music that's all selfish, it's all, it's all animalistic in nature. It expresses simple animalistic desire or yearning, whether it's a desire to engage in violence, a desire to engage in breaking out of shackles, but but it's it's selfish in nature. It's just more sophisticated than perhaps animal life, but it's really animalistic in nature. It's not selfless. Holy music is supposed to express the yearning of the soul. So, holy people who are also musically gifted, which means they're adept to expressing themselves through the rhythm rhythm of music are able to express their souls. That Tzemach tzedek, the third day of Chabad, he called nigun, he called holy music, he called it kolmas ha he called it the pen of the soul. Obviously, if somebody has a depraved soul, <laughs> what they're going to be expressing, articulating is going to be depraved. But if somebody is a very righteous, a very pious, a very selfless, a very devoted individual, if they're looking to love or express that love for God, or for the fellow in, a, in an altruistic and unselfish way, it can become a very holy thing. And that kind of music can actually elevate you. So, somebody asked me recently, somebody sent me an email, says, how can you always sing in the beginning of your classes? I don't know. When, I, when I'm studying Torah, I love to sing. It's a, when I'm thinking, it, it helps me. You know, I'm, I don't sing pop music. It's all Hasidish, uh, Hasidic tunes, tunes that have content, tunes that have meaning. We're talking about Shir Le Malot. It's not only a song of a sense, it's a song towards a sense. This is the kind of music, my friends. These are the kind of, of phrases, musical phrases. This is the kind of lyrics, the kind of hymn. This is the song that can uplift us. It can uplift souls in their post-terrestrial reality when the soul comes into its own but it can even uplift us here. We can use song to elevate ourselves. We should use song. Song was an important part of the service in the Beit HaMikdash. Much of what Hasidus restored to the Jewish people was a focus on holy music and on sacred songs. So observant Jews, pious Jews, will sing special songs on a Shabbat special songs on a Chag, on a festival. There's a certain liturgy, a certain chant, a certain music that comes along with the different forms of prayer on different days of the year. And it all serves to stimulate us, stir us, and to elevate us. And that's, that's shir malot. Now, I mentioned Bnei Hagola, and it's important for me to tell you that, you know, Ibn Ezra is not just saying this Bnei Hagolah. He actually bases this on a Medrash The Medrash Shochot of Medrash, Medrash Tilim says that this could, amongst other things, speak about the day of judgment. And on that day, the Bnei Hagola are going to be uh, looking for help. He says, this is sheer lamalot. And Medrash tilim says, this is the song of Mashiach. Because once we're elevated by Mashiach, it's lamalot. Once that happens, no more chutes and ladders. There's no more galut that follows after this. It's only one way. And that's up. And so the Jewish people will say to Hashem, when we finally do come out of Galus, we are singing to you. For this elevation, you have ascended, uplifted us from the governments that persecuted us and subjugated us. So now that we know what this is about, now we know what this is about, let's take a look at it. So what does David Melech say? He says, I raise my eyes to the mountains. Why do I raise my eyes to the mountains? May I in Yahweh as you, from where is my help going to come? Rashi doesn't comment. It's so interesting. He gives us this long introduction to what this is all about, like I give a long introduction today. But Rashi doesn't even tell us what the actual words of the Psalm mean. In fact, Rashi does not comment at all anymore on Psalm 121 doesn't comment take it at face value he says the Mitsudat Zion says I'm not raising my eyes to the mountains but El is like Al on the mountains to see me'ayin, from where Me'ezomakom, where's my help coming from the Metsudat David explains he says al ha'ozrim. it is common he says for the lookout to seek, you know, friendly forces. Who's going to come to our aid when we are besieged? So he says the way of the lookout is, to try to scale the mountains, to get up to some very high ground. And then, to try to see, maybe with a telescope, I don't know, try to see, maybe on a clear day you can see, see into the distance, to see where the help is coming from. Where they come, Where are the re- from? Where are the reinforcements coming? Surely the city won't fall. Where are the reinforcements coming from. So in the Mitsudis' view, David Maek's proverbial raising the eyes is to see where the help's coming from. Radak has a very different approach. He says that Esa Hammet. The one who hopes, la azo to find help. In, the, in other words, the lookout is hoping. He's hoping. Ola al harim. It's not so different. Sardon me. I meant to ibn mean, Ezra is very different. So the, the mitzvah is is mitzape la azo or Maybe read it as the mitzvah. He's looking for help from afar. Ola al heharim goes on to the mountains and he's looking. Radak puts a different. Slight tweak on it. he says, will they come? And the it seems certain. He wants to know where they're coming from. And he said, so he understands the word means from where? In fact, the Mitsudas cross references this with the verse in Genesis 29, where are you from? (laughs) Where are you from? Where are they coming from? Says the Mitzulis. I know I'm going to be helped. Where's it coming from? In the Radak's view, Maybe they're coming. And if they are, I wonder where they're coming from. So it's a little less certain. But still hopeful. The Ibn Ezra says, Me'ayin is as if to say, he cross-references this with Deuteronomy, the first chapter 28, K'mo'ono anachnu How how are we doing this? Not from where, but how? How is this going to happen? Ibn Ezra says it, it's don't expect this it doesn't happen anywhere else. And he says that the when somebody is besieged that the custom is natural. He's lost enough. He raises I lost enough. He's just looking around. He's looking. What are you looking for? He's looking. Maybe somebody's going to come and help him. So the Metsuda says, he's going up to find out who is helping him. The Radak says he's going to find out where the help's coming from, who's helping him, just in case, <laughs> hoping that they're coming. In the Ibn Ezra's view, mayin and Radak doesn't deal with the word Mayayin at all. He doesn't deal with that. Mayayin would be perhaps from where. In the, the Ibn Ezra's view, it's Mayayin is how? how? How is help going to come? Is help going to come? Maybe help? If it's going to come, hey, where would it come from? I, I don't even know. The common denominator of all three is that the person in a state of beleaguerment, the person in a state of challenge and difficulty, being surrounded by what seems to be insurmountable possibilities, things which are almost destined to inundate, you're looking for help. You're like looking, we're, we're looking, raising your eyes to the mountains, climbing the mountains, looking for help, trying to find the high ground or looking to high ground. Right? But the common denominator is I'm looking, who will assist me? Who's going to help me? So the Sepharono puts it very interestingly. The Sepharono says, he says, here, in this psalm, David HaMelech is, is, speaking about how things will end in the future. This is the, the lofty levels that will come, we, won't, we won't be coming back from, so to speak, like the Medrash says. And he says, therefore, what precedes that is that we're in Galut and Bnei Hagolos, when we were in, when our exiles were in exile, I would raise my eyes to the proverbial mountains, to the protectors, to the governments of the world, expecting magistrates and monarchs and governments to come to our aid. Who's going to help me? Who's going to be? Who was it? Who helped us when we were being herded onto cattle cars, when we were being pushed into gas chambers and ovens? Who helped us? The United States, Canada, Great Britain. How many sorties did the Allies fly over the tracks leading to Auschwitz, despite the fact that Rabbi Weissmandl had smuggled maps of those tracks into the hands of the Allies? Not one. In the last months of the Holocaust, nearly a million Hungarian Jews were incinerated. The Nazis had perfected the demonic work of death train load after train load after train load one sortie could have disrupted those trains one sortie over auschwitz could have knocked out the gas chambers and the ovens which are still intact except for one that was blown up by a group of inmates who rebelled i had the privilege of speaking to one of those inmates who used to live here in toronto It's natural to expect others to come to our aid. It's natural. It's normal. Who will help us in the present circumstances when Israel is beleaguered? Who helped Israel when Israel was beleaguered? A Jewish Secretary of State told the President at the time in 1973 let the Jews get a bloody nose. We'll save him in the end. We got a very bloody nose. It wasn't the United States that ended up saving us. My dear friends, this documents the mistake, the folly that we have made over the ages, continuously expecting that help will come from others or from natural means. But it's not so. Ezri, our help, my dear friends, me'im Hashem, Our help comes from Hashem. Of course, Hashem may use this, that, or the other force, or government, or person, or people. But the help comes from the Rebbeinu Shaloylam. So we need to turn towards Hashem. Do not rely on magistrates and monarchs. Don't rely on politicians. We rely on Hashem. It's not enough to believe in Hashem. We have to trust in Hashem. Trust means we know our help will come from Hashem. I may not know how Hashem is going to help. I don't have to know how Hashem is going to help. Think about the story of Purim. What did the Jewish people do? They had a queen in the palace. She was Jewish. Mordechai was a parliamentarian and a high-ranking one at that. He had the email, the cell phone number to all kinds of powerful people proverbially speaking but he didn't make a call and didn't send a text message he didn't seek a meeting and only after three days of fasting and petitioning the Rebendah was Esther prepared to make her move what does the story tell you? the story tells you that it is natural intuitive Esa May Ayin but really Ayin means nothing because in truth in truth, you wait for nothing. Because Ezri is me'im Hashem. Because our help comes from HaKadosh Baruch The Ibn Ezra says that these words Ezri have to be understood. This is either David and prophesizing, speaking of a specific intervention that will come from the Almighty, assistance aid from on high that will come, or al At what a Jew yearns for, hopes for, places his trust and optimism in. I don't need people salvation. We need Hashem salvation. It is God who creates the heavenly reality and the earthly reality. The earthly reality is not an independent one. Ultimately, salvation comes from the Rebbeinu Shalelam. The Mitzuddin's David says, I looked, I looked, I was sure they were coming. I didn't find Azer. Where did I find help? Rak? Only? Mehashem. My help came, but it came from God. In the words of Radak, Im Eso Eina Yel HaHorim, if i raise my eyes to the mountains it will help me for nothing ki because that's not where our help comes from that's not where our salvation lies and it's not where our security is elo hashem vi it is to hashem i must raise my eyes ki hu It is he who will help me. It is Hashem who will gather us in Minhagoyim from the many nations that surround us. Hashem, the maker of heaven and earth, Hakoil Biyodai Lasais Masheirza. This, my dear friends, is the most liberating song any of us could ever learn to sing. Do not place your hope in the forces or foibles of humanity. Place your hope in Hashem. Look to Hashem. Yes, of course, you must take all and any natural measures. But as David Amalach says much later on, Imla Yishmar Shov Shokad shamer If Hashem is not watching the city, the sentry is wasting his time. Certainly there needs to be a sentry, and certainly there needs to be a guard, and certainly there needs to be security. But all of that can only be successful under the B'nai Nisholeil of Baruch Hu wants it to be. Because Torah tells us that we are halachically bound to do our best, we do our best. But that's not our security. Our security is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That, my dear friends, is the liberating Torah view that can elevate us all, that must change our perspective and our paradigm. Rabbeinu Menachem Me'iri, another one of the great Rishonim says, that the Lamed is like a hay, and he says, it's come ad Mayim, till the heavens. Not two heavens, but like the heavens. And he says, this is nemar Al Hashem B'nei Agolus. This is what the generations of exiles will speak about. They will raise their eyes to the mountains. They will seek aid and assistance And this is, when you're embattled. (laughs) You hope for help. You wait for assistance. You, you, You put sentries, you post sentries on high places and mountains to see perhaps somebody's coming. He says, if I will raise my eyes to those mountains and on those mountains, And then I will see that I as a Jew must look beyond the mountains. That the mountains themselves cannot provide me with salvation. When I look to the mountains, when I look to those who will help me, and then I look at the circumstances, I realize that all the armies in the world cannot save us. Because they're so mighty, because the challenges are so daunting and seemingly impossible to surmount. So how are we going to survive? What's your plan, Rabbi? Aha, I'm glad you asked. <speaking in Hebrew> Hashem created the circumstances. He's not boxed in by them. Mishana <speaking in> hakoil. <Hebrew> Hashem can change everything by his will. And this is a message, says (inaudible) Rabbeinu Menachem Eiri, to the generations who will contend with exilic persecution and challenge and difficulty. (inaudible) Never give up hope. We are in the business of hope, not despair and we know that we always we always count on Hashem and we must continue to live with the hope and optimism of the faith and trust that we have in HaKadosh Baruch that's the elevating message of Psalm 121 that's how they started the song that's how they started the ascent now specifically it's very interesting to note that this although is an opening message it is the opening message. At the same time, Rebbeinu Yosef Chiyun, as cited by the Ma'amlois, tells us that Psalm 121 is a Shir Nechmad. It's a beautiful song. It's a precious song. It's Keneged HaShir It corresponds, it actually follows the song before. Because in the song before, do you remember what we talked about? If you are just joining now, you should watch the previous episodes in Psalm 120. We talked about the lies and the libel and the endless demonization against the Jewish people. And that allows a person, chas v'sholem, to start to think about giving up and despairing. And so we're being attacked in so many different ways. He says like a person who's on the highway and being mugged and he's looking to the mountains. Are are reinforcements coming? (laughs) Is there any law enforcement around? Hello? Is there anybody you can call out to? And then he realizes. Nobody home. Don't even make the call. But call out. And Unless you think that this is only relevant for us as a nation. As a people. Comes Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech and he says... It is important, it is meaningful to note that this is a lamed and not a hey, it's shir la malot, not shir malot. And he says this is the song that enables us to uplift ourselves. Hashem says to us, you can transcend your difficulties, you can travel to a higher place, you can be able to get past the, the darkness of the moment. You can, you can. You just have to. You have to put yourself into it. You just have to steep your mind and nurture and develop this higher perspective on life. And then the Maal says something amazing. He says, It speaks in the voice of generations of exile. As the Medrash said, as the Mefarshim explained. But then he says, it's not just about the nation. But rather, and it is quite possible. That this is, I'll call Yachid the Yachid, Anoysen, Elibai, Bitsarus HaGolos. Any person who pays attention to the difficulty that the nation of Israel is faced with, any person who has difficulty in his or her own life, when you're suffering, when you're down, when you feel overwhelmed with despair, that a Yid comes to the realization, I, I can't figure this out. I don't have a way out. Ein There is nothing else other than Hashem. The yitain And therefore he places his heart towards Hashem. And when he places his heart towards Hashem, then he knows me. Ayin the v'ezri. My help can't come from anywhere else. It's worth nothing. In different uh, syntax, it's like an addict who keeps thinking yeah i can lick this i can i can do this i'm not in trouble i don't need help what happens and then he hits rock bottom now unfortunately rock bottom very often is not made of rubber and not everybody bounces back from rock bottom sometimes rock bottom is too deep too dark too late people don't make it god forbid but the only way they can extricate themselves from this self-imposed exile is once they hit rock bottom, they come to realization that this present reality is not something I can dig myself out of. My dear friends, that's what the al is telling us. It is only possible for a yid to experience Hashem's miracles when he or she realizes, I can't do this. It's not me. It's not me. The things that I might hope for, the help I would look for, it's not going to come... And when you reach that level, when you come to the realization that Ezri meyim Hashem, then the miracles begin to flow. When a Yid puts his trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu like that. As Beinu B'chayya explains in Shadab B'tochen in so many ways, how important it is to have B'tochen only in Hashem Yisbarach. And if a person, Beinu B'chayya says, places his B'tochen in material or natural things, then, then the, the, the receive, he receives aid and intervention in a natural, material way. As the Rebbe explains in the in incredible Purim sicha. the Rebbe says that a Yid's survival, the survival of our nation and as us as individuals, is, is metaphorized as a, a, a solitary sheep among 70 hungry wolves. So when you know God, as Rabbi Yeshua said, when you know that there's no way for Israel to survive except Hashem's miracles, and therefore what we need to do is enhance our Torah study, deepen our devotion to Hashem and His mitzvahs, and then do whatever you could do. But even it that doesn't add up, it doesn't actually make sense. It's not going to work necessarily or necessarily not statistically, we have no chance. Doesn't matter. Statistics have got nothing on us because Hashem's miracles are with us. murim. you set yourself up that way. But the Rebbe, basing himself on Rabbi B'chayi's ideas, says if a Jew turns away from the miracles, instead of relying on Hashem, he relies on the monarchs and magistrates, which is exactly the mistake that the Jewish people made in the time of Purim. They said, we have to go to the ball because Ahasuerus is our protector. We can't offend him. And Mordecai said, it's on Shabbos. You're violating the Holy Shabbat. You're going to eat non-kosher food. They're making a mockery of everything that is holy using the utensils of the Beit HaMingdash. And they said, but that's where our salvation comes from. That's where your salvation comes from. Hashem said, okay. Like the Kliyokar says in in the Tochacha, You walk with me indifferently, you turn your back on me. Then I will show you what indifference means. And Hashem becomes indifferent to our pleas. This, it seems to me, is really the deeper message of what's being conveyed to us. And I want you to know that it's not only material aid or intervention or assistance, but the medrash goes further, and he says that in that time of din, in that yom hadin, the medrash goes on to say, we will reach for the hills, the mountains. That's the avot. We'll look for the merit of the patriarchs. And you know what? That can't save us either. But the only thing that can save us so when the yid realizes that he needs Hashem's mercy and compassion. La Kaddish baruch hu says to Ham Yisrael. Yeah, don't, don't, don't look elsewhere. You know who's going to help you? Hashem himself. Turn to Hashem, my friends. It's interesting to note that this idea of turning to Hashem himself, not relying And any other force is framed by Isa Shemaim Va'aretz, maker of heaven and earth. So the Al says, it doesn't say, I Hashem who have made earth. It says, I Hashem Isa. It shows us that every day Hashem creates a new program. Now, what are you worried about? How are we going to dig ourselves out of this? What will be? There seems to be no hope. Did anybody imagine COVID would turn the world on its head? In a matter of a week, life changed for us. A matter of days. What seemed certain, a few days later, was entirely uncertain. The uncertainty we face today made us realize things were never really as predictable as we thought. It's a new program, uh, he says, the sheik and Rebim Mishkel. Every day, Baruch makes Shomayim Eretz and this is all spiritual. And he says these spiritual realities, these oire ysruchniyim, from this comes the help for tzaddikim in the other world, and from this comes help right here. On that same Sukkot night in 1982, in Toshimah Gimel, the Rebbe said, he said, shemayim vaaretz, makes us think of the teaching of the Baal Shem Tev. Hashem is creating the world every second. Every second. Like a virtual reality, like like something being projected from a screen. The moment you turn the switch off, the picture's gone. Everything's being brought into existence by Hashem every second. So when you realize that everything is in Hashem's hands, every second, is it a surprise that a Jew would place his trust in Hashem and say, I'm going to do what I have to do, and I put my trust in Hashem? And the Rebbe said, take it personal. Kasha Yehudi nimtze vanayid finds himself in a matzav of Golos. Like Yaakov was. Not a nation. He was one man. And he asks himself, where's my help going to come from? It's going to be over here. The answer is, Ezri Hashem Isa ha Varatz. The answer is, that the help will come to you from Hashem. That's the answer to the Bnei Gola says the Rebbe, from the first paradigm of Galut, Yaakov, being displaced by Lavan. There's a fascinating interpretation which is found in the Agra de Pirka. It's the writings of Naftali Tzvi of Dinov, better known for his work called the Bnei HaSachar. I once heard uh, Rabbi Emanuel Shachat, told somebody in Toronto that he heard from the Rebbe, that you could rely on the Bnei Yisachar like Kisve HaRizah. So the Bnei Yisachar in Agadir Pirka writes that a Yid raises his eyes to the mountains. What are the mountains that are talked about in Torah? Har Tovar, Har Carmel, the mountain called Gavnunim. David Amal talks about this in, in Tillam, Psalm 68, different mountains. And the mountains were viences. Why are the mountains vying? What are they competing for? Each mountain, as per the Medrash said, Torah should be given on me. The widest mountain, the tallest mountain, the most majestic mountain. And Hashem said, no, no. I want to give the mountain on the smallest of mountains. And that was the mountain called Sinai. And so the B'nai Yisachar says that Me'ayin Yehavi Ezri can also be read not as a question but it can be read as a matter of fact. I raise my eyes to the mountains meaning learning the lesson of the mountains. What was the lesson of the mountains? Who would be the one to carry Hashem's Torah? Who would be the one to serve as the vehicle for mass revelation? And who was the one? What's the lesson? The lesson? The lesson was me'ayin from the smallest. In other words that may I and Yavi Ezri teaches us the more humble we are, the more we make ourselves a vessel for Hashem's miracles. So my dear friends, we rely on Hashem and we also have to make ourselves humble before Hashem. Not to say with arrogance and self-confidence, I could do this, I can take it on. Hashem will help us. And when we are humble before Hashem, amazing things could happen. I want to conclude with uh, a note, just a snippet of a letter that the Rebbe wrote in 1953. And um, it's so interesting. This letter so interesting to me that, that I'm, I'm having the privilege of sharing it with you today because the letter was written today on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. That's literally, this is a letter the Rebbe wrote today in 1953. And on that day, he wrote to somebody that what is written, of what is written in me, from Ayin, from nothing, from where, from when will my help come? The Rebbe wrote, you do it. It is known, there's a Pirush, it's known that there is an interpretation based on mystical Hasidic teaching. Alta Rebbe here is referring to the Maimarim of the Alta Rebbe in Shmini Atzeret, in Lukut as well as the subsequent Abbe developed this idea. It's not only a question, it's, a the Rebbe said it's also an answer. As we've learned, it's not a question. Agadapirka Pirka, is also from a Hasidic background, but later than the Al Rebbe, takes it that way. That's also an answer. An answer is his humility. The Rebbe here, quoting his predecessors, beginning with Al he says that the answer is May ayin, ayin refers to the loftiest level of divinity, to what is known as, proverbially, in the Zohar, atika kadisha, the holy ancient one. This is found in the Zohar, pays page, on page 64, and the language of the Zohar is atika stima'a dechol stimen. This is, so to speak, the origin of it all entirely hidden, entirely shrouded. So much so, the ikri ayin, to us, it seems to be utter nothingness. That utter nothingness, yavi ezri, that's where the goodness comes from. In other words, our salvation doesn't just come from Hashem, it comes from the deepest levels of divinity. Behu hanaisen ezer b'chol matzav. Kaddish Baruch himself. The deepest, most sublime levels of divinity, of which we have no fathomability whatsoever. That's the source of our help. And from there comes the Azer, From there comes the help all the way down into Öse, Shema, Voditz, the spiritual realities and the physical realities we contend with. And so, my friends, if there is a short lesson to be lifted From the many, many things that have been spoken about today, the many svarim that have been referenced, the message for us is: we must place our trust in Hashem and in Hashem alone. And if we do, then the miracles we hope and yearn for will unfold in real time. I said I would conclude, but I want to add, I guess, one final detail. There is yet another medrash, and the medrash refers to this mountain and says, "Well, you know, this mountain actually, this mountain is called Mashiach." The prophet Zechariah says that although the patriarchs are called mountains, the greatest mountain of all is Mashiach. As the prophet Yeshayahu said, that Mashiach will be raised and lifted, Rom Venisa, Rom higher than Avram Avinu. Venisa lifted over Yitzchak and exalted even over Yaakov And it is written that Mashiach will come by way of the mountains. As the prophet Yeshayahu and Manavu says, how welcome upon the mountain are the footsteps of Navasre Geula, the Mashiach, the messenger, who comes to bring and announce peace And the good news, the one who is going to bring us the message that Hashem is our King. And this, my dear friends, at this time, at the very end of Golos, we will lift our eyes to the mountains. We will lift our eyes, so to speak, to welcome Mashiach coming on those mountains. To see Mashiach, the great mountain, who will make us realize that our help, in the end, comes only from Hashem Yisbaruch. may it be Hashem's will. May we merit to hear those footsteps, the Mashi Mashiach, proverbially coming in from the mountains. May we merit to hear the glad tidings of Geula Haamitis Vashlema. in our time. will Ubi Thanks so much for joining. If you aren't subscribed yet, please go ahead youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And subscribe. Don't forget to enable notifications. Have a beautiful day.